Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. This is Allison Kaplan-Summer here with you in the studio. I'm filling in for your regular host, Amir Tibon, who, along with his wife Miri, deserves a big mazal tov this week for the birth of his daughter. A good reason for him not to be here himself. So it takes a big story to knock the COVID-19 pandemic off of the front pages as the Omicron variant continues to spread at record levels here in Israel. But over the past week, we've had two such stories. Later in the show, we'll be talking to Haaretz tech editor Omer Ben Yaakov about the explosive revelations that have been dropping daily in regard to Israeli police using the powerful surveillance tools of NSO on the telephones of citizens suspected of criminal activity. But first, a big story deserves a big reunion. Israel continues to be rocked by the news that former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has been aggressively pursuing a plea deal with state prosecutors. And it's a campaign with a ticking clock because he wants to make a deal before the end of the term of sitting Attorney General Avichai Mandelblit. Here to talk about it with us is, as I said, a reunion of the hosts of the Election Overdose podcast, Dahlia Scheinland and Haaretz columnist Anshel Pfeffer. Hi, Dahlia. Hi, Anshel. Hi, Allison. How are you guys? So we don't know exactly what the deal is, but it's broadly reported that Netanyahu would be somehow required to admit to the heart of the indictments in uh, several of his uh, cases without it being directly called bribery. And he'd have to agree to a prison sentence, which would be turned into seven to nine months of community service. He will also reportedly accept Moral turpitude, which in Hebrew is more concisely called kalon, meaning that if he pleads guilty, he will not be able to hold political office for the next seven years. Anshel, those of us who are not biographers of Benjamin Netanyahu were pretty stunned to discover after years of insisting that all of these bogus charges would come to nothing could possibly end in a voluntary admission of guilt, which Bibi and his loyal supporters we thought they would be fighting until the end. How and why did all this come to pass? And were you surprised at the news? I wasn't very surprised because there has been rumors around of Netanyahu seeking uh, such a deal. It wasn't the first time that this had been raised as a possibility. And the one thing we have to remember, the moment Netanyahu is no longer prime minister, that's been the situation for the last seven months or so, he doesn't have the biggest incentive he had against cutting some kind of a deal that was staying in office. So he's lost the main thing that he wanted to cling on to. And therefore, I think it was just a matter of time before there would be some kind of more serious engagement between his lawyers and the attorney general on this. So surprise, I wouldn't say. I'm perhaps a bit surprised that it took this long for it to come out, but it's not. A, I don't think it's entirely surprising development. Is it a sign of desperation? I mean, our political columnist Yossi Verder wrote this weekend that it's a sign that Netanyahu is begging for a deal he could have obtained at a much lower price and that he has reached the correct conclusion, but way too late and unfashionably so. The chronic procrastination that has characterized his moves over the past years worked to his detriment yet again. Do you agree that he missed the magic moment that he could have gotten out of this gracefully and is now sort of desperately begging for a deal? Well, Verter is, is entirely correct. Netanyahu could have got a much better deal 
if he had agreed in an earlier stage in the proceedings to admit to some, to some of the charges. But like I said, at that point, it was giving up the prime minister's job. Now it's just giving up the leader of the opposition in the Knesset seat and the prospect of running for prime minister again in the next few years. That's not the same kind of price. So it's true that Netanyahu could have got a better deal earlier on, but it would have meant him paying a much more expensive price from his point of view. Everyone's talking about what his family thinks. There were these, you know, cameras in the windows of Netanyahu's lawyer, and there was Sarah and his sons. Why is this like this big family decision powwow? Is it weighing the possibility of a political comeback someday versus financial security? What's going on in the Netanyahu family, do you think? Well, we know that Netanyahu is someone who involves both his wife, Sarah, and his two younger children, his two sons, quite intensively in many of his political decisions. But also, I think that for, if any of us were in a situation where we may be facing the possibility of sitting in prison and not sitting in prison guarantee and cutting our losses, but also having to admit to various crimes, I think those of us who are blessed with families which take part in our lives. I think we would all be involving our families in this. I don't think it's that. Dahlia, I'm interested in your take on all this, whether you were sort of bowled over by the news. And I want you to talk also about what a plea bargain, especially one that's been partially brokered and sanctioned in some way by former Israeli Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice Aaron Barak, would mean for the public image of the legal system and uh, judicial integrity in Israel and, you know, public faith in politicians and leaders and powerful people in general being held to account for bad behavior. I wasn't terribly surprised by it. And I think the reason is that we all know, if not nothing else about Netanyahu. And we do know a few things about Netanyahu after having lived under his rule for the last 12 consecutive years and three years before that. But who's counting? But who's counting? The one thing we certainly know is that he's always trying to sort of shape the path himself or reshape the path or think five steps ahead or come up with new and innovative ideas about how to change his position within the range that he has. And so when I heard the news, unlike Angela, I didn't really know the rumors, but it certainly didn't surprise me that he was trying to do something that involved him taking his fate into his own hands, even if it's in a slightly unanticipated direction. And it makes some sense. Certainly the idea of getting guaranteed to avoid jail time, I'm not at all surprised that he would involve his family. And in fact, some I've heard the theory, I think it's fairly plausible, that it could be that Sarah Netanyahu was one of the people pushing for this to begin with because the pressure on the family is so huge. Also, I think not coincidentally is a great way of getting him back into the headlines. And Netanyahu, I think, does not plan to be out of the headlines for seven years, no matter what. And no plea bargain can stop him from being in the headlines. In terms of that terrific question about what this says to the public about the rule of law, I think the most important thing is that for all of these years, ever since it was known that Netanyahu was a suspect and then formally indicted, the one thing that Netanyahu said all this time, ever since he was named as a suspect and then formally indicted, was that there will be nothing because there was nothing, which sounds bad in English, but great in Hebrew. And it was his mantra. The way Trump used to say lock her up, Netanyahu would say this at many of his gatherings and rallies, and he sort of would orchestrate people saying it along with him. So it became the core of his accusation against the state prosecutor, the police, and eventually the attorney general. And it tapped into a much longer assault on the legitimacy of the judiciary, which was often focused on the Supreme Court, even though Netanyahu himself was very cautious not to personally attack the Supreme Court. But the broader politicized assault on the judiciary in Israel goes way back. Its roots go back for decades. But it reached an entirely new level under Netanyahu's 
term when he came back in 2009. And it's been going on for the course of most of that time. And Netanyahu himself tried to stay above the fray, letting others do his dirty work in attacking the judiciary, attacking the Supreme Court, attacking the legitimacy of rulings and the judges themselves. Over the years, he essentially cultivated coalition partners and advanced people in the party who took those lines, but always gave the impression that he himself was not part of that assault. And then when he was indicted, he began personally jumping in to the delegitimization of the process, let's say, even though he still stayed away from attacking the Supreme Court, but he attacked the attorney general. Also, not so much personally, much more the prosecutors and the police. But it tapped into this whole sense that the entire Israeli judiciary and law enforcement was somehow corrupt and politicized. And there was some sort of hope in the beginning of the announcement, the revelations about this plea bargain, that if he admitted his criminal offense here, that he was somehow legitimizing the work and the investigation that had been done by the police under the state prosecutor and the attorney general, I think that hope itself might turn out to be naive if he ultimately comes back with a line that he did this plea bargain because he knew he wouldn't get a fair trial, in which case he continues doing the damage. And some of the Likud members are already saying that. Right. Okay. so before we move on to politics, you know, the political fallout of this, just quickly predictions. Will we see a plea bargain and what kind of a time frame do you think we'll see it in? I don't know if we'll really see a plea bargain, but I would say that the predictions that we have to see a plea bargain within the next, what are we up to, 10 days now until the end of the term of the attorney general, I think that's a little overstated. For one thing, every day that goes by, the commentators say it's less likely. But Netanyahu loves to drag these things out to the last minute. It very much reminds me of the coalition negotiations over the last four elections over the last two years, in which every coalition negotiation was drawn out to the very last minute. And there's even a possibility, depending on which legal perspective you look at, that even if he doesn't manage to do it by the end of Mandelblitz's term, that he might find a way to lay the groundwork for a future negotiation over a future plea bargain with a future attorney general, depending on who that person would be. Of course, that taps into politics and the identity of the justice minister, which I assume we'll get into separately. But let's just put it this way. He's not a friend of Netanyahu's. And Shell, what's in your crystal ball? Plea bargain or no plea bargain? I think that there's a chance that they may reach some kind of agreement in principle, but I don't think it, they'll, they'll reach the actual agreement because a plea bargain means they have to revise the charges, and the charges here are, are quite detailed, and there will be arguments between the two sides, between Netanyahu's lawyers and the state prosecutor team who have been uh, conducting the case until now. They will argue over every line in the revised charges. It's almost inconceivable that it can happen in the days which are still... Uh, remaining until Mandelblit leaves office, then we'll have probably a, a short period in which the current state prosecutor, Amit Eisman, is uh, the interim attorney general. I doubt an interim attorney general will want to be associated with such a controversial deal. But I do think it will be back on the table the moment there's a new attorney general in office, because I think all the sides involved, and we, we've talked, and we'll probably we'll talk a bit more about the controversy around this deal, but within the legal circles which are dealing with this, most of them want to reach a deal just to end this saga and state prosecutor's office to save the courts to at least two or three, probably more years of this case. Everybody just wants to be finished with it. Just the workload for so many people here. And it's not just this case. In many cases in Israel, the court is very anxious to bring the sides together into some kind of plea bargain. That's the way that Israeli courts work. So I think that we'll probably be talking about this plea bargain 
again in weeks or months from now. Okay, now to get down to the politics. Without Netanyahu, theoretically, let's say there's a plea bargain to kick around anymore. He's out of the political arena for the next seven years. Dahlia, will this not be a political earthquake? Won't it spell the beginning of the end of the Bennett-Lapid government as the rightward end of the coalition decides that, okay, without Netanyahu, it's going to be kosher to join forces with uh, Likud? I think it's not impossible. I may have a running bet with somebody on this podcast about what might happen in the event of Netanyahu leaving the scene. But we should point out that there have already been rumors that Netanyahu might try to finagle a deal by which he is allowed to remain the head of the Likud. It's not necessarily a foregone conclusion that he can't remain in that position. He may not be able to be head of the opposition. He may not be able to run for prime minister if it should come to elections. But right now, I'm not sure I would rule anything out if he does leave as head of Likud. We are speaking on the day, by the way, that Aryeh Derry has resigned from Knesset because of his plea bargain. And in that case, I think it's absolutely likely that the coalition would be very vulnerable. I mean, they only have 61 seats. All that would happen is they would lose, you know, one person, whether it's from Likud or some other party. I can imagine some other parties that are vulnerable to one or two people peeling off. In that case, the government would collapse or it would be a minority government. The flip side is that it's not enough for one person to leave the government and cause the government to collapse. The other side has to be able to form a coalition, Mm -hmm. which those are not the same thing. (laughs) And if they get stuck and they get into political arguments, then we could be headed for new elections. And in that case, it's certainly not impossible that we will be heading into elections within the next, uh, you know, roughly within the next year. And Shil, contrarian that you are, you published a piece last week headlined, Netanyahu signing a plea deal will not trigger a political earthquake in Israel. What do you see happening inside and outside the Likud should this plea deal become a fact? Well, I don't see Netanyahu leaving the scene that quickly. Yes, any of the possible deals on the table will mean that he has to resign from the Knesset, and therefore he'll no longer be the leader of the opposition. But then what happens next is no longer under the control of the court, whatever the terms of the plea bargain are. Likud is not binded by the court to, to fire Netanyahu, disallow him from holding the office of chairman of Likud. First of all, he'll still have that. They are, Likud has its own constitution, which also talks about moral turpitude being a bar to, to holding an office within Likud. However, that is under the jurisdiction of an internal Likud court, which could say that in this case, we don't see Netanyahu being under moral turpitude, and therefore he can remain leader of Likud. And even if he doesn't remain leader of Likud, de facto, even if he resigns from that as well, he will still have a massive influence within the party. It's not perhaps the people who are, who are vying to replace him, but beneath that, first of all, the parliamentary faction, at least half of it, are diehard Bibistim, and certainly over 100,000 members of Likud, overwhelmingly pro Netanyahu, and all Netanyahu has to do is to hint that so-and-so is not his, his man or woman, and so-and-so will have a very difficult time being elected. I'm talking here mainly about Nir Balkat, but not just. I think Netanyahu will certainly try and influence his success. And for that reason, the rest of this government of, of keeping Netanyahu out of office will remain as long as Netanyahu is still an important figure in Israeli politics, and he will still be a important figure in Israeli politics. I don't expect him just to go quietly into the twilight. He's not that kind of person. I don't see a Likud leader who is, A, independent of Netanyahu, and B, can establish his or her, it could probably be his, leadership over the party in such a way that they can really form a coalition and a government of their own. So this may not be great news for the government because it does give certain right-wing 
members the appearance that they have more alternatives now. But I think all in all, this government will soldier on probably for another year at least. So can I just add two points that contradict both myself and Angel, two other scenarios. One is that when Angel said that it will take some time after this plea bargain is signed, if it is signed, for those negotiations to happen, I have very little doubt that someone as thoughtful and strategic a planner as Netanyahu has not started already. I mean, if he wants to sign this plea bargain, reshape Likud, whether he remains as party leader or not, I have no doubt that he's already negotiating or trying as hard as he can to identify the weak points within the coalition and have back-channel conversations with the potential defectors. That's one thing. But there's another scenario, which is the exact opposite, which is that after this happens, whatever goes on with Netanyahu, again, if there's a plea bargain, it throws Likud into some sort of disarray, either because he's still there or because he's not there. And in that situation, I could even imagine Likud defectors joining the coalition. It's not impossible. There are sanctions against it, but it certainly happened before. And so I think that right now we have so many possible scenarios and permutations that it's a little bit hard to predict. So whether or not we see an election next year and either Dalio or Anshel wins their Twitter bet, whether or not we see Yair Lapid actually becoming prime minister in uh, 2023, and whether or not we see a future elections overdose uh, podcast and we get to hear Anshel and uh, Dalia argue some more. This is all uh, in the future. And um, we look forward to finding out and hearing from both of you. Thank you guys so much for being here. Coming up next, Haaretz tech editor Omer Ben-Jacob is here to explain the latest in the NSO spyware scandal. Hi, Omer. Thanks for coming on the podcast. A pleasure. Fun to be here. Thanks. So, as we know, the Israeli cyber offense firm NSO has become internationally infamous. It sells its Pegasus spyware to state intelligence agencies around the world, which is able to, in Israeli slang, infect and drink (laughs) all of the information, (laughs) targeting smartphones, gaining full access to everything in them, right? All messages, all everything. And not only that, it can turn your cell phone into a remote recording device, unbeknownst to you. They can look at your camera and your microphone and all kinds of fun stuff. That That's you not don't spooky want to at all. No, not at all. <laughs> so over past years, we've had story after story after story of the questionable use of Pegasus around the world. And in fact, you just published a piece as part of an international consortium of journalists creating an updated list of every individual known to have been targeted with the spyware. And it's around the whole world, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. for sure. So even though we know this, Israelis have been shocked, stunned to find out via reporting by the Calculus newspaper that Pegasus is being used by the Israeli police against Israeli citizens. So tell me why the shock? Was there some sort of naive belief that Pegasus can't work on Israeli phones? So yes. (laughs) The short of it is yes. NSO for years have been telling everyone that the system doesn't work on American numbers. It doesn't work on Israeli numbers. And the logic has always been American numbers because we don't want to get in trouble with the U.S. And Israeli numbers because we don't need to. The Israeli kind of, you know, Shin Bet and the different authorities that are active here have other ways of spying on citizens when they need, especially Palestinians. And they don't need a private contractor. And if you look generally at the NSO's clients over the years, and we know that Israel has helped kind of push them out as a business, and then it's usually states that don't have that good of a tech scene. And they need some private contractor to develop this spyware capability. 
in Israel, we have so many, <laughs> so many service providers, and all the talent grows organically. So you don't need to do this because, in theory, Shmoni Matai, A200, or, you know, the Shin Bet have these capabilities, and they shouldn't be using them against Israeli targets. What we're now discovering is that this theoretical restriction on using Israeli numbers was probably only relevant for clients like Saudi Arabia or Morocco or Hungary, but not for the Israeli clients. And it turns out that among those clientele, or at least this is the only one we know of, is the Israeli police. And I think people are shocked, shocked as he goes in Casablanca, right? He's shocked to discover that there's gambling going on at this establishment. So Israelis are shocked, shocked to discover that it's being, that they're, it's not even getting a taste of their own medicine, is that their their literal medicine is being used <laughs> against them. It's not, there's not even metaphor for this. It's just these tools that we've known are used against activists and journalists across the world. Turns out that a stupid police force can also use them against their own There's citizens. just been this big debate as to whether the Shin Bet should be called in to fight crime in the Arab sector because they use all of these, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, questionable techniques, etc. Yeah. So you think Israelis in their mind make a distinction between what the Shin Bet and the Mossad do and what the police should be able to do? Yeah, for sure, for sure. I also think that Israelis generally have a very kind of high tolerance for surveillance. Like I have an old joke about how Snowden would never work in Israel. Like if you were to come to a journalist and say, listen, I have proof that the state is listening to everyone, then the journalist would be like, yeah, but, but what, what's the news? <laughs> we yeah. wouldn't, that wouldn't even be shocking for us, you know, as, as a thing. But that being said, I do think there is kind of what you'd call this ticket time bomb narrative that like the Shin Bet and the, the Israeli security forces when there's a ticking time bomb they have the means to do whatever needs to be done to stop that kind of threat and it, I think it, it always blows Israelis minds to discover that once these tools are out there then they can also be used by our lame police force in a sense which maybe convinced the government or convinced someone early on that they needed it for taking time bump scenarios as well, but can now easily abuse this kind of stuff themselves. And I'll just say that a few months ago, there was a big revelation about uh, Palestinians. First time there were Palestinian targets of NSO. There were six targets all in all, all human rights activists belonging to NGOs that Israel was blacklisting. But what a lot of people didn't notice is that three of those Palestinians had Israeli phone numbers. So there were Palestinians on the Israeli phone network. And obviously there was no issue targeting them. And we assumed that the person doing the targeting was Israel. So maybe not the police. So we know that there's some connection. I think it's just so vulgar how this is now coming back and biting Israelis, not even, I would say, on the back end, but it's just such a, a classic replay of everything that's happening abroad here. So it's activists, it's mayors. Right. I was going to say, we've had these daily bombshells. It's yeah. kind of drip, drip, drip. Uh, Calculist is uh, yeah, releasing yeah, yeah, yeah. the story like very uh, systematically. <laughs> One day we hear this political activist is being targeted because Pegasus found out that he's been dating men and he's yeah. married. The police found out through Pegasus that he's dating men and they wanted to use that to let Leverage him. He wasn't even right. accused of anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, today we find out about the the mayors of local authorities and their families yeah. and their associates. So who's leaking these stories? Why do you think? Who's doing it and what's their interest? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think a lot of the NSO stuff is really, really, really hard to confirm. One, because it's like a super smart secret spyware that one of the things it knows how to do is kind of delete itself from the system. And also because a lot of times it's not really used for criminal investigations. It's used for phishing expeditions in which they collect intel on someone. So it's not that, you know, you go to court and then you hear that, you know, according to spyware, they discovered you, you sold these drugs, right? It's never about that. It's about finding some leads into which they can then track you or entrap you. And I think what's so interesting with this case is that it's really clear that the person or the origin of the story is not a victim but rather, I would say, a perpetrator. So the person who's probably leaking this out is, if I had to guess, would be a former police officer who probably worked there and was probably fired because the level of detail that they have 
it shows that they were inside the mechanism. So a lot of times we've, we've had leaks from... On the other hand, they're saying mayors. They're not saying which mayors. Exactly. Yeah. So either they don't necessarily know, which is possible. NSO has always said that their kind of staff doesn't have access to the actual kind of... Um, the user data itself, but only supply the kind of framework for this to be done. And that's why, because of the level of detail here, I don't know this, but my assumption is because the, the main story focused on how this was brought into the police, how a special mechanism was set up in the police to deal with it. And most interestingly, in my view, is that the police didn't know how to operate the system and they had to actually hire people from 8200, from the Israeli like military intelligence, signal intelligence <laughs> unit, to actually operate the system because they couldn't find a cop <laughs> able to. It's only, you know, the story really, like, it, you know, begs you to laugh, yeah. You picture these 40-year-old cops with like this 18-year-old soldier telling them literally, what to do, right? Literally, yeah. literally. And also in that same scene that you can imagine, you can also as easily imagine the abuse where they're like, this is so good, we managed to find this pedophile wow, that's crazy. We can use this about anything. Like there's these protests now happening in Jerusalem and like our bosses are really all over us to, you know, to deal with these protests. Maybe we can use this software to also figure out what the protest people are planning. That's great. Like there's you know, no debate about democracy, about like- Civil liberties. Civil liberties. That's why I said that the A200 aspect of this is so interesting is because it is to me more than anything an example of how military intelligence culture is permeating a, a civilian kind of police force. So they're using tactics that we know- from Fauda that we know from like Tehran you know that we that we know yeah. at an international spy kind of bond level intelligence collection and not you're one of the mill protester who's planning to block some road and they want to prevent that road from being blocked so final question what does the police have to say for themselves and what is NSO saying about mm. this so the police are of course shocked shocked to discover this is happening it's the they, they've bad made, apple there's a bad there's apple a bad, in no no they've shifted we've gone from the bad apple phase they started with a complete blanket denial then there was a small shift to like a bad apple kind of argument which was along the lines of like if there was any use it was being done completely legal if there's any wrongdoings we'll immediately examine and you know when we're done examining Examining, we'll examine some more and so on and so forth. The new shift from this morning is, yeah, this was happening legally, but we all need to kind of ask ourselves where Kalkalis is getting this information. It's all probably coming from a disgruntled cop. So I plan to talk about this disgruntled cop theory earlier. And then today the police minister actually said this. So Omar Belev actually said this morning he doesn't want to deal with this story anymore because it's so obviously a disgruntled cop, which of course begs the question, like, you know, a disgruntled cop can also be right. So he can be disgruntled, but he's still, he's not wrong. So I think we're now at the kind of like, um, this is a much smaller issue than people think and da-da-da-da. I think what will be interesting to see is if we can actually find names of victims and if those can actually be confirmed in some more meaningful way because I think that the police have, it's very easy for them to kind of be like, you know, this was only used in rare cases and it was all legal and then retroactively go to judges and get some blanket warrant that says it's okay. It'll be interesting, you know, for example, if we discover that certain activists who have never been accused of anything were used against this. And I think the second interesting aspect that this story can go to is beyond NSO. So there's a few other companies. But did NSO have a reaction to all this? Oh, yes. Okay. So NSO is, is, is very stressed about this. They're having a terrible week generally, a terrible period generally. And I know from different people who are suspected of being victims that NSO has actually reached out to them and told them, this is not us. We're not doing this. If we knew it was you, we'd never be allowed to do this and so on and so forth. So I think they're scared because I think that they realize that this year was going to be their end anyway. This will make it that much worse. This will make them unhirable within Israeli society also. If you help stop terrorism, there's some like, you know, glow and shine to that. There's no glow and shine to chasing protesters. Everyone gets that's wrong. So I think they're trying to do damage control. And my hope is that they throw the police under the bus sometimes this week and come clean and say, yes, the police bought this from us. This is what we know they were using it. We thought it was legal. We had no idea. But we'll have to wait. We'll wait and see. 
Omer, thank you so much for joining My us. pleasure. That's it for today's episode. Thank you to our producer, Maya Ben-Nissan. See you all next week. And until then, shalom from Tel Aviv.